There is an old American folk song called Billy Boy. Charming Billy is in love with a girl who is apparently too young to leave home. When you sing the chorus, she's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. You get the impression that Billy's girlfriend is still a teenager. But listen to the lyrics. How old is she, Billy Boy, Billy Boy? How old is she, Charming Billy? Three times six and four times seven, 28 and 11. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. Add it up and Billy's girl is not as young as you thought. She's not a young thing after all. If you're good at math, she's actually 85 years old. (laughs) Suddenly you're concerned with Billy's girl. I mean, this is the song about a dysfunctional person. By the time you're 85 years old, you're expected to grow up and move out. You're no longer a child. You're now an adult. And this was Paul's concern for the Christians in Corinth. At this stage in the life of the church, he expected them to show some maturity. Instead, they were acting like babes. They were believers, but there was dysfunction. They weren't growing up. And Paul coins a term to describe them. He calls them carnal. That's where chapter 3 begins. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. You remember in chapter 2, Paul divided humanity into two groups, the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man doesn't know God. Man is a sinner by nature. We're born alienated from God. Left to ourselves, we spiral toward destruction. Sin and rebellion, ignorance and prejudice come natural for the natural man. But the spiritual man is alive to God. God's spirit dwells in him. He also sins at times and it grieves him when he does. But it goes against his new nature. Deep inside, his desire is to please God and to love others. But now in chapter 3, Paul brings up another type of person. He calls him the carnal man. The Latin word carne means flesh. And when I think about this, I always think about my wife's chili. When Kathy cooks chili, she puts lots of meat Lots and lots of flesh into her chili. It's chili con carne or chili with flesh. And carne describes the believer who lives a life oriented toward the flesh. He possesses God's spirit but isn't possessed by God's spirit. He hasn't allowed the Holy Spirit to shape and color his outlook His life is governed by natural, physical impulses and appetites. He has God's spirit, but he lives as if he doesn't. And Paul refers to such a person as a carnal Christian, a babe in Christ. And carnal Christians show the same sort of behavior you'd see in the nursery this morning at Calvary Chapel. You know those in the nursery. If they don't get their way... If they aren't the center of attention, they cry and they pout. They can't stand on their own and they need other people to prop them up. 
They lack discernment and become vulnerable to deception. Because of their short attention span, they get easily distracted. And those in the nursery this morning, they don't feed themselves. They have to be fed by others. And what's true of the babes are true of the babes in Christ. Realize, if you've been born again a few weeks, this is an understandable dilemma. You're a babe in Christ. It takes time to mature. But if you've been a Christian for years and you're still carnal, something is dysfunctional. You need to identify it and repent and grow. Nowhere in the scriptures do we ever see playpens and burping bibs in heaven. Along the way from earth to heaven, God expects his people to grow and to mature. When my daughter-in-law Jess was pregnant, she got a unique baby shower, a unique baby shower gift. She got a PPTP. A PPTP. It's a device that aids in changing a baby boy's diaper. A washable cloth cone caps off a certain part of the male anatomy. This protects the diaper changer from being fired on by an uncontrolled bladder. (laughs) It's a great idea, but it's clear that it's just a temporary fix. The real goal is for that young man to gain a sustained control of his bladder. And this is God's goal for us. Rather than be carnal, rather than be a babe, he wants us to live constantly under the influence of his spirit. This is why God doesn't take us to heaven the moment we're saved. He leaves us in this wicked world. He subjects us to trials and temptations. For it's this resistance training that builds endurance and that teaches us how to trust in him. Well, Paul tells the Corinthians here in verse 2, he says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are still not able. So here's another characteristic of a carnal Christian. He drinks milk when he needs to be eating solid food. Oh, it's cute to watch a newborn suck a bottle. But a teenager still on a bottle is an alarming problem. And this was the case with the believers in Corinth. They had an immature approach to Scripture. They were sucking on the basics rather than cultivating an appetite for meteor truths. Hebrews 5 verse 13 describes the dilemma. It says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. See, realize a spiritual babe likes to read the Bible stories. But a mature believer studies Bible doctrine. A babe wants to know about God, but the mature seeks to know God personally. A babe marvels at what God does. The mature worships God for who he is. A babe learns biblical principles. The mature gains a biblical perspective. A babe fills his mind with facts, whereas the mature fills his heart with love. Again, it's okay to be a babe for a season, but too many believers stay there. They never graduate kindergarten. They never become spiritually mature. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving 
like mere men. See, a definite mark of carnality is friction and division. You know, you expect to see quarrels and fighting and biting and selfishness in the church nursery, but not in the sanctuary. Babies squabble, not the spiritually mature. Apparently, Corinth's worship services resemble the toddler room here at Calvary Chapel. And Paul writes, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? See, kids fight over trivial, selfish stuff. You can hear them on the playground. My dad is stronger than your dad. No way. My dad can whip your dad. And like kids, these Corinthians were taking pride in human heroes, in the celebrities that they were following. This was the situation in the Corinthian church. The believers had polarized around their favorite leaders and pastors. And of course, this happens today. People have their favorite pastors. Teenagers gravitate toward the young, handsome pastors. The ladies in a the church, they have their favorite teachers. Georgia Tech folk, like birds of a feather, they flock together. <laughs> Hipsters seek out the cool pastors. And old folks, they like the same old, same old. I understand that each pastor has his own flavor and his own style, and that's okay. I believe God creates a wide array of pastors to reach a wide variety of people. But it's wrong when we accentuate the differences in a prideful way, as if one teacher and his followers are holier than another. We need cooperation, not competition. Despite our differences, we are one body. And so he says in verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. Why get excited about the messenger? It's Jesus who saves, not his messenger. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. You remember in Corinth, Paul had planted the gospel seeds and Apollos had come by later and watered them. But in Ephesus, the roles were reversed. It was Apollos who had planted and Paul who had watered. God uses his messengers to touch different people at different points in their life. You know, I've spent years with some people sowing seeds and watering them in prayer and have seen very little fruit, whereas there have been times when I just bumped into a guy and got to lead him to Christ. I mean, God uses us in different ways at different times with different people. But always, without exception, it's God who supplies the miracle of new life. It's God who gives the increase, Paul tells us. Once there was an agricultural school in Iowa. They were studying the elements needed to grow 100 bushels of corn on an acre of land. Here's a partial list of the ingredients needed. 4 million pounds of water, 6,800 pounds of oxygen, 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of sulfur, etc., etc. Well, the researchers estimate, estimated that less than 5% of what it takes to produce a crop of corn is supplied by the farmer. In other words, God supplies the lion's share of the resources. 
And the same is true for the spiritual harvest. Compared to the work of the Holy Spirit, our role in saving souls is minor. We can sow the word, but we can't make it grow in a person's heart. Nothing happens eternally or spiritually unless God's spirit is involved. It's always God who gives the increase and thus God who gets the glory. And so he says in verse 8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. In other words, we're all on the same team. We have the same goals. We serve the same boss. And God is going to reward us for our ministry. Not necessarily its size, not necessarily its influence. But have we been faithful to the task that he assigned us? We don't get to choose our task. He chooses. Our job is to be faithful. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Architects know the foundation is the most important part of the structure. The stronger the foundation, the safer the building. And this is true for spiritual construction, for believers and in churches. Notice verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Here is the solid foundation on which every Christian ministry should be built, Jesus Christ. Hey, anchor a ministry to some social cause or to some pet doctrine or to some experiential phenomena, or to a political objective, or to a style of worship, or to an exciting personality, and you're building on a shaky foundation. But if you want a Christian ministry to last, build it so that it points people to Jesus. For he says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. You know, when you erect a building in Gwinnett County, you can't just slap up a structure. You have to comply to the building codes. And God also has his building codes. In serving God and in building his church, there are guidelines You know, I grew up in a church that had a prideful pastor. He was just a real domineering guy. He liked to push people around to get his way. I'll never forget one day, my mom and I, we were discussing it, and she actually defended him. She sighed. She says, oh, but you know, he led so many people to Christ. And that's when God spoke to me through my own words. I said, but mom, in ministry, the ends never justifies the means. And it still doesn't. That's what Paul is teaching us here. One day, our works for God will be judged. You know, the Bible speaks of three end-time judgments. In Matthew 25, the nations are gathered to be judged in the valley of decision. In Revelation 20, unbelievers are tried and condemned at the great white throne of judgment. But believers in Jesus will all appear before the Bema Seat 
or the judgment seat of Christ. And this is Paul's focus here. Unbelievers will be judged by their works, whether good or evil. Whereas Christians are saved by faith, not works. But our works of service after we're saved will be tested. God will reveal of what sort they were. He'll expose the motive behind our acts of service. All those times when you taught Sunday school grumbling because you had to get up early to babysit a bunch of snotty-nosed kids. And the time you ushered and hurried people out of the door so you could get home to watch the football game. See, those acts of service will be like wood, hay, and straw in the fire. Oh, they'll look impressive going in, but the fire of God's holiness will burn them to ashes. Whereas the time you jumped out of bed eager to love the little ones for Jesus, or the time you led worship with a smile on your face and you put out some extra effort, when those acts of service pass through God's holiness, they'll come through unsinged, like gold and silver and precious stones. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Again, we're saved by the blood of Jesus. Our soul escapes judgment because Jesus passed through the fire for you and me. But our service will be tested to see of what sort it is. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. In the Old Testament, temple, the priest never defiled or polluted what was dedicated to God. And the principle carries over to the New Testament. Today, God's temple is his church. And church work, like temple work, should never be polluted or defiled by bitterness or jealousy or manipulation, or greed. Church service should be holy and glorifying to God. It says in verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And to prove his point, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, Job 5 and Psalm 94. For it is written... He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. He reminds the Corinthians not to become proud in their knowledge. You know, chapter 1 taught us that God isn't revealed through human wisdom, but through simple faith. He's reminding them that up against God's wisdom, we're all just a bunch of bozos. He says, therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. See, these splinter groups in Corinth acted like they had an exclusive claim on their favorite teacher as if he belonged to them. And yet the church is a family and what belongs to one belongs to all. We're all about sharing, not hoarding. There's no private property in the kingdom of Christ. The Bible, the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel, the grace of God, heaven itself, the rapture. It's not just mine, but it's ours. 
All that belongs to the Father is shared by His children. Well, chapter 4 begins, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Notice this, Paul describes a Christian minister two ways. Servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This Greek word translated servant, it means under roar. And it reminds me of the famous scene from the movie Ben-Hur. You know, the slaves were chained to oars below the deck in the Roman galley ships. Two columns of men, they rode to the Roman cadence. They kept pace with a drum and with a whip. The slaves had no say in the speed the boat was traveling or in how hard they rode. Their only job was to follow orders. Well, welcome to Christian ministry. This is how God describes those who serve Him as under rowers. Our job is to row to God's cadence. If you want to be involved in ministry for God at any level, remember the job title is servant or under rower. You know, somewhere along the line in our, in our culture, the word minister gained an exalted status. But the Lord never called anybody to be a star or a celebrity, just a servant. The assistant pastor for years at the First Calvary Chapel was Pastor Romain. And he used to tell young pastors, serve the Lord as if you're serving in only your underwear. If that's your attitude, you won't seek the attention of people. You'll serve, and then you'll get out of the spotlight as fast as you can. That needs to be our attitudes. We need to be servants. We're servants of Christ, but we are also stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward was a household manager. He was a trusted slave in charge of his master's house. He was expected to manage the affairs with his master's interest in mind. And likewise, God entrusts us with incredible spiritual resources. We're to handle them wisely, not wastefully. And note the steward's lone, single, solitary priority. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Not successful, necessarily, but faithful. You know, we live in a world preoccupied with success and all of its symbols. Even in church, it's often the worth of a person's ministry is often measured by budgets and buildings and databases, bucks in the bank and buns in the seats, as I say. But you can have great numbers, loads of nickels and noses, and still not be pleasing to God. The Mormons got a lot of people, but they're heretical, not faithful. Don't be deceived. True success in ministry is determined by one quality and one alone. Are you faithful? Have you been obedient to what God called you to do? When Mount Vesuvius erupted, it covered the cityscape of Pompeii under a blanket of lava. Years later, when the ruins were searched, a a sentinel was found encased in the lava, still standing by his gate. See, even in the chaos of the eruption, the man never left his post. He was a good steward. When the smoke cleared, he was found faithful. 
And this should be our goal as servants and stewards of our Lord Jesus. Have we been found faithful? He says in verse 3, he addresses his critics. He says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Paul's critics were accusing him of being unfaithful. And in the next few verses, Paul answers their charges in three ways. First, he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. That's interesting. Rather than rake himself over the coals, he just rests in God's grace. He said, I don't even judge myself. Rather than look inward, Paul looks upward. I like that. You know, some Christians I know are into self-examination. They spend enormous time and energy searching their own heart for hidden sins. Actually, their effort is wasted time. This is not how Paul dealt with his sin. Instead of digging for sin, Paul reached for the heavens. He focused on knowing Christ and trusted the Lord to bring to light the flaws that he needed to correct. Too much introspection causes depression. Spend all your time looking for sin, and you'll have very little time left to look to Jesus. Faith grows only when we take our eyes off ourselves and fix them on Jesus. Second, Paul makes the comment, for I know of nothing against myself. In essence, I've got a clean conscience, yet I am not justified by this. See, God created us with a moral compass, a conscience. Our conscience helps us to discern right from wrong, but the conscience can be deceiving. You remember Proverbs 14, verse 12 warns us, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Some people are vulnerable to blind spots that our conscience doesn't pick up. Sin is like crumb, crumbs in your beard. Without a mirror, you're the last one to know it. And this is why for Paul, Jesus was his only judge. He says, but he who judges me is the Lord. Paul didn't answer to his critics in Corinth. The Lord Jesus was his judge. And then third, Paul realized that all permanent judgments won't be made until Jesus returns. Notice he says in verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Remember this, this is profound. In the here and now, not a one of us is in position to see the whole picture. Not a one of us. Only the Lord Jesus has all the facts. I'll never forget the couple that came to me for premarital counseling. When it surfaced they were living together, I suggested that they separate until the wedding night. Seemed appropriate. Well, suddenly this girl, she bolted from the room. She had tears streaming down her face. It turned out a few weeks earlier her apartment had been broken into. And tragically, she had been raped. Her boyfriend was sleeping on the couch for her protection. Man, I apologize for jumping to a conclusion before I knew the whole story. Only Jesus can read the true motive. Only Jesus knows what's really going on in a situation. This is why we need to leave the judgment of a person's heart to that person and to his master. Only at Jesus' return will our hearts be fully revealed and motives fully disclosed. Until that day, don't you jump the gun. 
And then he says in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Paul uses himself and Apollos as examples to get to the root cause of their divisions. You know, sadly, the Corinthians loyal to Apollos degraded Paul, and those loyal to Paul were putting down Apollos. And it wasn't just that they had their favorite teacher. They made their tribe look good by making the other tribe look bad. In essence, their problem was pride, just plain old pride. Pride was the root cause of their destructive divisions. And the cure that Paul prescribes for all this unbridled judging that was going on is to learn not to think beyond what is written. Let me say that again. Learn not to think beyond what is written. See, we all need to realize the boundaries of our judging. If it's not written in God's word, if you can't point to chapter and verse, if it's just a question of style or your opinion or some taste or some tradition, then stop judging. Just because you don't like it doesn't make it wrong. Paul says, learn not to think beyond what is written. And then he says in verse 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? These Corinthians were being so proud, so haughty. And yet all the Corinthians possessed, they had received by God's grace. Why are they now taking pride in blessings that came as a gift? Reminds me of the pastor who asked his friend, he said, man, will you pray that I stay humble? His friend replied, well, first tell me, what do you have to be proud about? The answer for us all is zilch. All we have is a gift from God. And in the next verse, Paul reeks with sarcasm. I'm sure it angered the Corinthians when they first read these words. Paul mocks these arrogant believers. He says, you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. The Corinthians had been acting like royalty. that They were some kings or princes. They were flaunting their privileges within Christ while ignoring the responsibilities that had come with those privileges. He says, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The Corinthians were acting like royalty, whereas Paul and the apostles were being treated brutally. The word spectacle was well known to Roman citizens. The emperor ruled the populace by keeping their stomachs full and their minds entertained. You've heard the expression, bread and circuses was the Caesar's formula. And the various forms of Roman entertainment were known as spectacles. Amphitheaters were built all over the Roman world to host athletic competitions or spectacles. Chariot races were held in Rome's Circus Maximus, the Talladega of the day. 
At times, the Colosseum in Rome was flooded to stage mock naval battles. Gladiators fought to the death on the Colosseum's normally dusty floor. A favorite bloody headliner in the Roman Colosseum was to toss Christian leaders to hungry lions. See, it all fed Rome's thirst for spectacle. And Paul is saying that while the Corinthians are passing these frivolous judgments on each other and causing dissension in their ranks, there are other believers in the church who have been made a spectacle to the world who are paying a steep price to follow their Lord Jesus. The prideful Corinthians were acting carnal while men and angels were focused on the apostles who were being abused by the Romans as spectacles. Kind of puts them in their place. And then in verse 10, Paul speaks sarcastically. He contrasts the persecuted apostles with the prideful Corinthians. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. He's talking tongue-in-cheek. How did the mighty Corinthians become so wise, so strong, so honorable in their own estimation, while the apostles, who sacrificed their very lives for Jesus' sake, appeared as fools? Could it be the Corinthians were judging success by worldly criteria? You, you know the movie, Field of Dreams. An Iowa farmer, he hears a voice in the cornfield. Tells him to plow under his crop and build a baseball diamond. Build it and they will come. Well, he builds it. And shadowy men from a bygone era play ball on his field. And of course, the farmer's family, they think he's a certifiable nut. No one trusts his actions. They think he's being reckless. They don't understand. Everybody calls the man a fool. And whenever I watch that movie, I think of myself. For as a Christian, I hear voices, one voice. I hear the voice of God, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. I base life-altering decisions on a voice that nobody else hears. And as a result, I have seen God in action when few others have seen him. Am I ready to be seen by other people the way the farmer's neighbors saw him? A fool for Christ? The Corinthians were proud. They cared about how other men saw them. They wanted to appear wise and strong and honorable. In contrast, Paul could care less about his image. He was willing to be a fool for Jesus' sake. He says in verse 11, To the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. A steward's job is not to be rich and comfortable, but to be faithful even if that requires suffering. And we labor working with our own hands. You remember in Corinth, Paul met a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, fellow tent makers. Together they went into business, and Paul worked a secular job to support his ministry. He continues listing the sacrifices that he made for the sake of his ministry. He says, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. Paul was certainly a fighter. He never rolled over. Paul always struck back, but it was the way he fought. He responded to personal attacks with blessing. He resisted opposition with perseverance. And when he was falsely accused, he retaliated with the truth. 
He says, we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Literally, he's saying, we've been treated like the scum of the earth. And guys, this is why human judgments are so erroneous. For the people God crowns, this world clubs, folks who are honored in heaven like Paul are often mistreated on earth. Verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. You, you just can't understand how grieved Paul's heart had become. Paul was mourning that the Corinthians had listened to his critics rather than to him. Paul had given his life for these people. And now they didn't trust him. They were listening to other people. Paul was the man who had led them to Christ. In essence, he was their spiritual father. And yet they had turned a deaf ear to Paul. He tells the Corinthians, you'll have 10,000 teachers in your lifetime, but only one father. And this is true of you as well. The pastor or the friend who led you to Christ, the church where you were saved, will always have a special place in your heart. Oh, you'll enjoy other churches and other teachers, but you only have one spiritual parent. And this made the Corinthian doubts of Paul all the more painful to him. He felt personally betrayed. You know, one of the first lessons you learn when it comes to ministry is that love always flows downward. You know, we don't love our parents as much as our parents loved us. <laughs> our children won't love us as much as we love them. Why? Because love is like water. It always flows downward. And the same is true spiritually. Just because you love and invest in someone else's life doesn't mean they'll return the favor. The people you serve may never love you as much as you love them. Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 16, he says, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. <laughs> Paul is not like the parent who tells his teenagers, do as I say, not as I do. Don't think for a second your kids won't see through that kind of hypocrisy. Paul sought to be a leader by example. I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. Not all of Paul's love had gone unreciprocated. A young man named Timothy had been his faithful son in the Lord. He says, and Timothy will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy was the one who delivered this letter to the Corinthians. He was Paul's representative. He says, now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. Again, he's addressing his critics. And some of Paul's critics had the attitude, well, while the cat is away, the mice will play. You know, while Paul's gone, we'll just do as we please. And now Paul issues a warning. He's coming to Corinth. He's going to settle the score and he's going to set things straight. He says in verse 19, 
but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Boy, when Paul arrives in Corinth, he's going to come with more than words. He's going to come with power. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means. Sounds like a threat to me. Sounds like when Paul arrives, he's prepared to cram a little humble pie down some haughty Corinthian throats, if need be. When Paul hits town, though, he's going to demand an accounting of this church's attitudes and accusations. And yet Paul wants to return to Corinth. He wants it to be a happy reunion. The chapter closes. He asks, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love, in a spirit of gentleness? In other words, it's your choice. Paul approaches the Corinthians dependent on their attitude toward him. Do you want me to come with a rod, with discipline? Or do you want it to be a happy time, a happy reunion? Do you want to receive me with love? You know, when my boys were little tykes, and they were intent on misbehaving, all I had to do to get their attention was just to take off my belt. All I had to do. Just take off my belt, and I'd lay it over the door to their bedroom. And I'd just let them look at it. i just look at that belt. When the belt came off, words were no longer necessary. And here, Paul has taken off his belt. Do the Corinthians want him to come with a rod or in love? Let me close with a line from a country song. Sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. (laughs) Paul isn't threatening them. He's just telling them they'll be the bug if they don't stop bugging him.